Have you heard the one about the canary and the cobra? It goes something like this. A British man is living in Egypt. He's an archaeologist, and he's getting ready for the winter digging season. He tells his friends, I'm going to need some company during those long months. So I'm bringing a special companion. They're all like, ooh la la, who could it be? But when this special companion arrives from England, they find out it's a bird. A literal bird. I'm not being disrespectful. Homie sent for a canary. What can I say? Now, soon after the bird arrives, this British guy makes a huge discovery over at the archaeological dig. Like, massive. And to celebrate this big achievement, he decides to host a dinner. But midway through, he realizes he can't find his canary. He's upset, but then someone spots it. Well, not really it, but a lump, about bird-sized, making its way through the belly of a cobra. Okay, obviously some of these details are embellished, but the bird really did get gobbled up. And this, I'm afraid, is a bad omen for our British friend. Because in Egypt, cobras are known as protectors of the kings. See, this all happened soon after the British dude had pried open the tomb of King Tutankhamun, which apparently unleashed a curse. The curse of the pharaohs. Now, some people think that's all a bunch of silly superstitions. There is no curse in the tomb. Absolutely not. I could say that unequivocally. I've been in the tomb a million times. There is no curse in the tomb. But I beg to differ. Because I'd wager there really was a curse at play. Just not the one everyone talks about. From Gimlet Media, this is Not Past It a show about the stories we can't quite leave behind. Every episode, we take a moment from that very same week in history and tell you the story of how it shaped our world. I'm Simone Polanin. On November 4th, 1922, 99 years ago this week, the entrance to King Tut's tomb was finally discovered. It was one of the most important archaeological finds in history. And the discovery triggered an intense interest in the artifacts the tomb contained. They were glittery, gold, and haunted by rumors of a curse cast on anyone who dared disturb the boy king's tomb. And boy, did a lot of people disturb him. We'll unbandage this baby after the break. There's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. 
Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with a personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Before King Tut's tomb was officially opened, an archaeologist, his assistant, an earl, and his daughter stood huddled at the bottom of a stairwell. The archaeologist, Howard Carter, that British dude with a pet canary, brings a candle close to the opening so he can see through. Immediately, he fell silent. The Earl asked, can you see anything? Carter peered into the dark. Yes, he replied. Wonderful things. A gasp of wonderment escaped our lips. So gorgeous was the sight that met our eyes. We realized that we were in the presence of the dead king. This is Carter recalling the moment years later. Among all that regal splendor, everywhere the glint of gold. Catching the light of Carter's candle, gilded sculptures, walls, jewelry. Thirty-three centuries had passed since human feet last trod the floor on which we stood. The quest to find King Tut's tomb had taken close to a decade of planning and waiting and digging, beginning in 1914. And it all happened because of Howard Carter. You have to love the guy. You have to love him. Historian and writer Daniel Meyerson is a big Carter fan. He wrote a book about the excavation of King Tut's tomb called In the Valley of the Kings. Carter was British by birth and had grown up lower class. He has a a fifth or sixth grade education. He's not polished. But he was gifted with great artistic ability and was hungry to improve his lot in life. As a teenager, he had kind of a weird job. So he went around to all the aristocratic houses and he made portraits of the aristocrats' pets the dogs and the this and the that. One of those aristocratic families presented him with an opportunity. A friend of theirs needed someone who could draw, so they told him, come to Egypt and help out this archaeological dig by copying pictures from tombs. It was a chance to rub elbows with the upper social ranks he hoped to join. Carter was sold. Egypt was kind of the place to be back in the day. A vacation spot for the wealthy, digging around for more wealth. Lots of ancient discoveries were being made in this one area called the Valley of the Kings, a narrow section of land near the Nile River, which had been the burial site for almost all Egyptian pharaohs. By the time Carter arrived in 1891, this area had been picked over at various points by other European archaeologists. But Carter, he's got this hunch. Carter is the only one who has a theory that there's a tomb that's been undiscovered in the valley, in the Valley of the Kings. 
Carter thinks this tomb that's undiscovered is actually the tomb of the young Egyptian king named Tutankhamun, you know, Tut for short. And he wants to be the one to find it. But for Carter, to make any money on this pipe dream of his, he needs to get money to pull it off. So he turned to a sponsor to help him out, a guy named Lord Carnarvon, a wealthy British earl with an estate known as Highclere Castle, an estate you might actually recognize as Downton Abbey. Yeah, Carnarvon was rich, rich. And Carnarvon's motivations matched Carter's. He also wanted money, spoils, reputation, his name in the history books. So they formed a partnership. Long story short, the Egyptians gave the thumbs up, and then Carter started digging for Tut's tomb in 1917. And it took a really long time, like almost a decade. And just when they were about to give up, after years of finding nothing, finally a breakthrough. A young Egyptian laborer brought a jug of water to the site, cleared a spot on the ground for it, And just like that, he uncovered a stone. The first step in a staircase that led directly to the tomb. Eureka, baby. That's the moment that the tomb's officially discovered and the world is ablaze. And that's the beginning of everyone wanting to come to the tomb. Carter sends a telegram to his beneficiary, Lord Carnarvon. The message was triumphant. At last, have made wonderful discovery in Valley. Congratulations. That telegram was sent November 6, 1922. Less than three weeks later, Carnarvon shows up in Egypt with his daughter. On November 29th, they open the tomb of King Tut. The signs of recent life were around us. The tiny wreath of flowers, the last farewell offering of the widowed girl queen to her husband. They told us what a short period 3,300 years really was. The quality and splendor of the objects that were found is, were really amazing. This is Dr. Monica Hanna an associate professor and acting dean for the College of Archaeology and Cultural Heritage at the Arab Academy for Science, Technology, and Maritime Transport in Aswan, Egypt. The objects were the objects of the daily life of the little king. So his sandals, his chair, his jewelry, his perfume jars. He even had this model where he probably used to put his jewelry on. Also, we have the four canopic jars, which had all the internal organs of the king. Carter and the team spent the next 10 years excavating, studying, and cataloging all 5,000 artifacts inside the tomb. The quality of craftsmanship, uh, the amount of artifacts and funerary equipment that was in the tomb, it did not just teach us about uh, King Tut. It taught us about how a royal intact tomb would have looked like. Dr. Hannah says this wasn't just important to the Brits who were giddy over the spoils of their discovery. I think the workmen, too, were very amazed by what they found. And 
the workmen were telling each other, although they were not uh, supposed to, to say what they found, but uh, it was very exciting also for the Egyptians. But even with all of the artifacts, there was a limit to what they learned about King Tut, the person. No one knows for sure why he died, or even exactly what years he reigned. All we know is that he was sickly, died young, and was buried in a fantastical chamber of secrets. This story is unfinished, and this mystery is a part of why everyone was so attracted to Tut. And that's also maybe why people kept placing meaning on some of the weird things that happened on the dig. Like, take this statue. I mean, these are very delicate things. Daniel Meyerson again. When they begin to clear the tomb, they take out a wooden statue and they photograph it in the beginning. And they have this flashbulb kind of thing where light explodes. And, well, the, the whole wooden statue, after the picture is taken, just crumbles to dust. And it wasn't just a crumbling statue or even Carter's dead canary. Suddenly, people started to die, too. You curse, the curse, the curse. A curse is awakened. That's in a minute. Welcome back. Before the break, we heard that after years of searching, Howard Carter discovered the tomb of King Tutankhamun, But something was awry, and people started to suspect that Carter might have accidentally unleashed an ancient curse of the pharaohs. King Tut may have started punishing those who disturbed his eternal slumber. First, it was Howard Carter's pet canary, eaten by a cobra. Okay, depending on how you feel about canaries, maybe devastating to Carter, but not, like, scary. But soon... Shit got real. In 1923, less than six months after the tomb had been discovered, Carter and Carnarvon stood outside it. This was the day they were going to finally break into the innermost burial chamber. Carnarvon is I'm doing a little song, a little jig, a little dance, you know. He's really happy. Author Daniel Meyerson says there was a journalist named Arthur Weigel watching and the literal dancing on Tut's grave rubbed him the wrong way. And Weigel is sitting there, and this is really, this has been documented, and this is shocking. He says to Carnivan, if you go down in that mood, singing and dancing and all that, you don't have six weeks to live. And six weeks later, Carnivan is dead. The official cause of death was sepsis. Carnarvon had gotten a mosquito bite, which became infected. But he died around six weeks later. I mean, that's fucking weird. What's more, according to Carnarvon's son, at the very same time his dad kicked the can in Egypt, back home in England, the family's beloved terrier dropped dead too. As if all that wasn't weird enough... Newspapers reported rumors that around the moment Carnarvon and the Terrier died, all the lights in Cairo went out, too. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, you have to admit. I mean, yeah, fair point, Daniel. 
In the years that followed, as work continued in the tomb, the curse continued to strike. George J. Gould, an American railroad magnate, visited Tut's tomb and suddenly fell ill and died. Arthur Mace, a conservationist who helped remove Tut's linen shroud, died in 1928. Reportedly, Carter's friend, Sir Bruce Ingram, received a weird gift from Carter, a mummified hand wearing a bracelet with a phrase inscribed on it. Cursed be he who moves my body. Shortly after, Ingram's estate burned to the ground. When he attempted to rebuild the home, it was ravaged by a flood. There is the feeling that if you violate a pharaoh's tomb, you're committing sacrilege, blasphemy, and you're doing a terrible thing. But the mystique of the curse just fed the mania for information about Tut. Newspapers covered the curse extensively, with headlines like Superstitious Fear Voodoo for Those Who Disturb Pharaoh's Sleep and Carnarvon Dead, Priest Says Curse is Loosed from King Tut's Tomb. When the dust had settled and the excavation was over, the artifacts from King Tut's tomb were housed mostly in the Egyptian Museum in Cairo. But then, in 1976, more than 50 artifacts from Tut's tomb were loaded onto a U.S. Navy ship and sent to the States. The artifacts were bound for art museums across the U.S. for a new traveling exhibit called The Treasures of Tutankhamun. The exhibition had been hastily arranged two years before by the State Department. They'd been looking for a way to show off the new friendship President Richard Nixon had established with Egyptian President Anwar Sadat after years of tension, solidified during a 1974 trip to Cairo. Two presidents of Egypt and the United States meeting together. We cement the foundations of a new relationship. Nixon would resign two months after this trip, but he inadvertently set the stage for King Tut's new afterlife to begin. Many of the treasures of King Tut went on view for the first time ever in America, shipped from the Cairo Museum in Egypt to the National Gallery in Washington, D.C. D.C. was the first stop on this megatour. Tutankhamun, the boy pharaoh of Egypt, has sent Washington right on its ear. Lines snaked around the block to get into the exhibit. And it wasn't just the normies going crazy for Tut. Robert Redford has been here. And Elizabeth Taylor, the Rockefellers, the Kissingers. I saw Mrs. Mondale in there a few minutes ago. After all these years, 33 centuries, this Egyptian boy is a bigger celebrity than any of them. The exhibit was so popular the National Gallery in D.C. even had to repair its floors because of all the foot traffic. For two and a half years, the Tut exhibit traveled, making its way from D.C. to Chicago to New Orleans. I don't think anything will ever equal that pandemonium, frantic excitement that King Tut uh, generated in New Orleans. On to Los Angeles. The Tut exhibit opens here tomorrow with a run through mid-June. Once past the traffic, the money-making schemes, and the other hype that surrounds it, visitors should find this display a very, very memorable one. And finally, 
to the Metropolitan Museum of Art in New York City. The Treasures of Tutankhamun is already sold out for its entire run at the Metropolitan Museum. When sales opened in September, all 900,000 general admission tickets went in four and a half days. I was fortunate to be just the right age, a curious, you know, 10-year-old or something, and, and see it. And, and you were struck. Journalist David Camp remembers attending the exhibit as a child when it traveled to the Met in New York. He wrote about the mania surrounding the tour for Vanity Fair. It was a status symbol, like being able to get into Studio 54. Part of it was the hype, because anything you wait on a line for, you're kind of expecting to see something great. But it didn't disappoint either. At the Met, the exhibit got some especially theatrical staging, exclusive to the New York stop on the tour. Enter, if you dare. It was presented in dark rooms to kind of recreate the sensation of being Howard Carter, going down into the tomb where it's dark and spooky. In the hall, shimmering artifacts, including Tut's famous golden funerary mask, depicting Osiris, the god of the afterlife, and topped with the royal insignia of the cobra. And so there was an element of, of almost a Halloween exhibition, you know, like, you know, you're meant to be spooked by the process of walking through this exhibition. Clearly, there was a lot of love for King Tut and huge interest in seeing ancient Egyptian culture on display. Museums quickly realized that interest could make them a king's fortune. The Treasures of Tutankhamun exhibition was actually the first one for which museums established gift shops, meaning not just like little stands with trinkets, but, you know, the whole idea of the museum gift shop, which is now both a wonderful thing and a huge revenue stream for major museums, was born from this. The Metropolitan Museum had everything from refrigerator magnets and and booklets to really expensive things. And to this day, the Metropolitan Museum of Art is selling tut stuff and still making money off of it. One of the great art exhibits ever to tour the United States is the Treasures of Tutankhamun, or King Tut. That's Steve Martin on Saturday Night Live in 1978. But I think it's a national disgrace the way we have commercialized it with trinkets and toys, T-shirts and posters. Parodying the rabid consumerism that came along with Tut mania. Ironically, though, this song went on to make quite a bit of money, too, selling a million copies. It seemed anything King Tut touched turned to gold, or, I guess, platinum? I've made the joke that there was so much labor and thought that went into Tutankhamun's burial by the people he ruled over in Egypt for the afterlife. And the joke is that they were right about an afterlife, but it wasn't the afterlife they were thinking about. It was this celebrity afterlife in the 20th century when King Tut, as opposed to the actual king, became this archaeological celebrity that people would queue up for outside of museums. The tour was obviously a smashing success. All told, the tour and everything surrounding it is estimated to have pumped $111 million into the New York City economy alone. 
The Egyptian government, however, profited significantly less. In the end, the tour raised $9 million for Egypt, which was certainly useful, especially for a much-needed refurbishing of the Egyptian museum. But it was obviously a tiny fraction of the money injected into the U.S. economy. I mean, if, if I was the agent for Egypt, I would ask to renegotiate, reopen those negotiations. You'd think the story of King Tut would be a story that's mostly about Egyptians, about learning about history and respecting culture. But so much of what happened to Tut's tomb is actually about Westerners and the things they were taking away from Egypt. Carter was relentless in his search because he wanted the glory. Carnarvon wanted riches. And so did those American cities and museums, even Steve Martin, all of them Westerners who got rich off of Tut. I think that another aspect of the curse is a way to rationalize guilty feelings about imperialism, about who are we as Westerners, you know, Englishmen and American archaeologists, to claim our right to open up an Egyptian tomb, you know, on the continent of Africa. In fact, the entire idea of the curse was made up by Europeans. It's not Egyptian at all. Shocker, right? The Western world has been so eager to claim Tut and other ancient Egyptian artifacts as its own, as part of an idealized global culture, or this idea that it's everyone's history. There is still significant debate today about where artifacts should live and who owns them. There's this Western fantasy of ancient Egypt, golden and gilded. And then there are the real people. Tut is a reminder that so much life has come before us. Life filled with beautiful, wonderful things. Cloth woven, pottery shaped, flowers placed by loving hands. There's an impulse to reach for those things, to grab them, to keep them for oneself. But I'm not convinced that we all get equal claim to them. These artifacts, they come from a specific place, from a specific time. Diluting or removing that context, to me, feels historically dishonest. You know, the historian Daniel Meyerson says Howard Carter learned this one really important part of archaeology. An artifact found in its original context is always more valuable than one found after it's been removed. You get a much richer understanding of the place you're exploring. Without that context, you don't get the full story of the artifact. You lose its specificity. You lose some of its essence. And it feels to me like King Tut got removed from his context, from his culture, and got stripped of his essence to satisfy this larger appetite for awe. If there really is a curse of the pharaohs meant to protect the entombed, I don't think it worked. Not Past It is a Spotify original produced by Gimlet and ZSP Media. 
This episode was produced by Lauren Newcomb and Amy Padula. Next week, we revisit the legend of crime boss lady Ma Barker. An Oklahoma Florida federal agents killed the notorious Ma Barker and her son. For six hours, the neighborhood was like a battlefield. The rest of our team is producer Sarah Craig. Our associate producers are Julie Carley and Ramoy Phillip. The supervising producer is Erica Morrison. Editing by Maura Waltz, Andrea B. Scott, and Zach Stewart-Pontier. Fact-checking by Jane Ackerman. Sound design and mixing by Matt Bull and Hansdale Shue. Tape sync by Sam Fisher. Original music by Sax Kicks Ave, Willie Green, Jay Bless, and Bobby Lord. Our theme song is Toco Liana by Coco Co, with music supervision by Liz Fulton, technical direction by Zach Schmidt, show art by Elise Harvin and Talia Rockman. The executive producer at ZSP Media is Zach Stewart-Pontier. The executive producer from Gimlet is Abby Ruzica. You can read David Camp's article, The King of New York, on Vanity Fair's website. Special thanks to Ron Fritzi, Dr. Christian Loban, Leila Aminadola, Zahi Hawass, Marag Kersel, and Lydia Polgreen, Dan Behar and Clara Sankey, Emily Wiedemann, Liz Stiles, and Nabil Cholampat. Follow Not Past It Now to listen for free, exclusively on Spotify. Click the little bell next to the follow button to get notifications for new episodes. You can follow me on Twitter, at Simone Polanin. Thanks for hanging. We'll see you next week. What do you think? You think it's a curse? Join, join me in my madness. <laughs>